You folks from Missouri, ever heard the expression, don't meddle in my affairs? <laughs> meddle to means to interfere mischievously. Well, in the South, we have this phrase, the preacher has gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> because when he gets personal, it's a more meddling into your life. <clears throat> well, Stephen is going to move from preaching to meddling. In this sermon, he's going to go for the juggler. No doubt about it, where there were certain subtleties for the Sanhedrin to pick up that they're the very ones who rejected God's deliverer in the fact of Mo Joseph. They, there were subtleties of the fact that they rejected Joseph, his brothers did, the patriarchs, and the fact that they sold him into slavery and did not recognize him the first time they went down to Egypt. But the second time, make no mistake about it, they recognized him. Well, that subtlety of rejection, deliverer, is going to be clearer as Stephen <clears throat> steps into the life of Moses. So, this is the longest part of the narrative that I will preach. That begins in verse 17 and follows all the way down through verse 43. That's a long read. And every verse is important. But I'm going to do it a little different today. I'm going to read a few verses and preach a while. Read a few verses and preach a while. You're okay with that? Just so we'll understand the context of what's going on. Again, he will prove to them by the life and ministry of Moses that the idea of their sacred space, i.e. Palestine, the Temple Mount, <clears throat> is a, and that being the holy ground to them, is a fallacy. And it was the Jewish people themselves, in fact, who not only rejected Moses, but ultimately rejected the prophet that Moses told them was on the way. Because Moses said, I tell you, there's coming a prophet in the future like me. When he comes, listen to him. And that's in Exodus chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, excuse me, is where Moses says this. So Stephen has preached on Abraham and Joseph. <clears throat> Again, there are subtle allusions of betrayal and rejection, but it's going to be very, very clear as he preaches and talks about Moses. He'll drive that point home that they had rejected God's deliverer. Therefore, the title of the sermon is Holy Ground and God's Deliverer. Verses 17 through 19. Listen to the word. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. That's the introductory remarks this far. And here's the main thing you learn. God keeps His promises. So down in Egypt, there is an incredible redemptive history lesson. God does not leave His people in bondage in Egypt. He had given His people a straight promise that I'm going to deliver you from bondage. And so God was in the process of keeping His promise to who? To Abraham. He was keeping His promise that I'm going to multiply your generation. I'm going to touch the ends of the earth with your nationality. Your, I'm going to take you, one group of people, and I'm going to take you and plant the seed of the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He alone, Himself, 
will take salvation and save people to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> so God is accomplishing that. And the people were increasing and multiplying down in Egypt. Now, if the Jew is tempted to think, well, there's no ground but, but God's ground in Palestine, he's reminding them that not only did God send them, them down to Egypt, and they were in bondage in Egypt, but they were also multiplying and increasing while they were down in Egypt. Even while our forefathers were down in Egypt, God was keeping His promise to Abraham. They were multiplying and increasing. Now, I think there's a direct connection with what's going on in Acts chapter 6. What's happening? In Acts chapter 6, the church is growing and increasing. Little subtleties, multiplying. And so, Stephen is making this connection with the fact that just as God kept His promise down in Egypt, God is keeping His promise right now before your eyes, increasing the number by saving their souls. And folks, you can take it to the bank. God has the goods to get His promise taken to fruition. He will accomplish His purpose to the ends of the earth. And so, he reminds them of that. So, Stephen will also remind them of another king who comes on the scene down in Egypt that did not know Joseph. And we know this was the Pharaoh. And they endured the, uh, the most horrific scene that could ever be imagined to man when their, un, when their newborns were born. They were brought forth and they were exposed, laid out in the sun or thrown to the alligators or killed. That's exactly what that king said. All the babies, all the boys born were to be destroyed. And yet when it looks like everything is falling apart, it looks like God is far away. Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin as he's preaching that God even when it looks very, very bad will not abandon His people. Thus God will keep His promise even in dire circumstances. God was doing something exceedingly and abundantly above anything they could ever ask or think. Just think with that unimaginable situation of giving up your infants because of the king's edict. God is working sovereignly in the midst of that to redeem his people. To take those seemingly uh, insurmountable circumstances. But God is orchestrating the circumstances for your good and his glory. That's what God was up to. So the point of verses 17 and 9 through 19 is to remind the people as Stephen is preaching... That God was keeping His promises, not only to Abraham and Joseph, but also down in Egypt with our forefathers. God was keeping His word. Aren't you thankful that God keeps His promises? You need to take the promises of God and wrap them around your heart like an anchor with a rope that leads you to heaven. Because every promise in God, every promise in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. Praise God for the promises. Uh, on the inside of a little book, I think it's called Promises in the Word. I saw one time where there were over 37,000 promises in the Word of God. Isn't that incredible? We need to take those promises and know that God is as good as His Word. Now, beginning in verse 20, we're going to look at the life of Moses. It breaks down for us extremely well. They're in three forties. The first 40, the second 40, and the third 40. How about that? That's the way you're going to get the summary of Moses' life. And again, remember, the thematic structure is <clears throat> God sent his deliverer to you just as he promised. But you rejected him. You rejected the one that God sent to lead you out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, there was never a time when you people were happy with Moses. 
You always disobeyed and you always complained. And God had sent that deliverer. So he's moving it over to the fact that just the way you rejected Moses is the same way you rejected the God of glory when God sent him down from heaven. So look at verses 20 through 22. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. So, isn't it interesting that when God is ready to do something big, he does it through a special birth? Hello! Y'all awake out there? I mean, this is a reoccurring theme, is it not? Through the Word of God, and in which it finds its ultimate meaning in the birth of the God-man. But here is a special birth that takes place, and the text says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Now, for you moms who think there are no children as pretty as your children, like my grandbaby, right? <clears throat> like we would say, well, this is my grandbaby, and she's the prettiest one, or he's the prettiest baby. Well, the text does say he was beautiful in God's sight, but it has nothing to do with the fact that all the other babies had an ugly appearance, and Moses had a pretty appearance. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that this one was cute, so God said, let's preserve him since he's cute. What it means is that down in Egypt, God put his favor on one little boy. That's God's free, sovereign will to do whatever he wants to, Right? And that's what God is saying in the midst. Stephen is saying, listen, God was in control of all things in the process of delivering his people. And God takes this little boy, Moses, and he has a unique purpose for the life of Moses. And so he was, again, the text says, he was only in an Israelite home for how long? Three months. And then he was placed in the basket. You know the story. He is placed in the basket, sent down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And I'm sure that for a lot of Jews, thinking about the life of Moses first initially, probably thought, well, it would have been better for the crocodiles to get him than to be raised in the home of an Egyptian. But that was not the case. The Bible teaches us that even though he was in the home of a pagan, think about this, he was nurtured and educated by Pharaoh's daughter. He was enrolled in the University of Egypt. Talk about a godless education, right? He was not educated in the sacred land of Israel. He wasn't educated in the temple in Palestine. He was educated way down in Egypt. And even then, he was in a pagan home, not a believing Hebrew home. God kept him preserved for his sovereign purpose. Does that surprise you? That God would preserve him for his sovereign purpose? And so it is. Moses, the Bible says, was a very powerful man. Stephen notes this, spiritually, morally, and educationally. Now, in verses 23 through 29, we have Moses' second 40 years. And Moses is going to make an attempt for deliverance. Listen to the word, beginning in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Every word's important. Notice that word visit means more than just going down and drinking some coffee. It actually means that he had in his mind when he went down to Egypt deliverance. He knew that he was the man of God for the hour. Now, you miss that when you read the Old Testament narrative, don't you? Because you're thinking, mm, just a bad attempt. 
Moses just goes down and in his folly he blows it. But no, Moses is actually going down in his mind, knowing he's God's man, knowing he's going down to deliver his people. And Stephen catches on to that. And Stephen tells us that when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. And again, in the Hebrew, visit and this visit means more than just going down there to kind of hang out and see what was going on. He was going down, hoping that the people would see that he was God's deliverer. Any overtones there? Of being sent the first time? Hello, y'all with me? Just like Joseph, just like Moses, they were sent. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by the striking down of the Egyptian. Listen, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said to him, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So we see in this text, uh, again, the Exodus account. Uh, Again, we're prone to think that Moses just went down aimlessly to visit people, but that's not the issue. He's coming down there to offer redemption. Uh, As Stephen gives us wonderful commentary, he's coming as their deliverer. Strikes down the oppressor, defends the oppressed, and his assessment is hopefully that the people would recognize their day of visitation. God had come down, but they didn't recognize their day of visitation. At the end of Luke's gospel, uh, we have this incredible uh, encounter with the rulers of the day, and Jesus says to them, if only you would have known the day of your visitation. Same rulers that Jesus is speaking to at this point. They repudiate him, And we know what the story is. He flees down into a foreign land. Again, who was with Moses? Was he in Palestine? Was he in the promised land? No, he wasn't. And God was with him. He was a stranger, just like Abraham was down in Midian. And God's redemptive activity did not begin on the Temple Mount or in the land of Palestine. God's redemptive history for his people begins way down in Egypt. What an incredible parallel that's provided for us by our God. Again, just as Joseph wasn't recognized the first time when they went down into Egypt, they didn't recognize that Moses was the deliverer sent from God. Now we arrive at the next 40 years. I'm doing good, right? You know, if I went into the forest to preach this, you'd miss the trees. I can't go over to the Old Testament and read all the narratives because you'd miss what Stephen is trying to say. Okay, folks, for some of you <clears throat> that are 80 years of age, I want you to know and remember that your next 40 might be your best. Don't look at me so strange. Some of you probably heard Moses' address to the people. I realize that. But if you're 80, y'all are slow to catch stuff. Listen, if you're 80, some of you are pulling up the brakes. Can't do this, can't do that. Well, Moses was 80 before the redemption out of Egypt. I'll remind you of that. Just, just saying. Okay? Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, 
the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Are they in Palestine? Are they anywhere near the temple? Where was the holy ground? Where God came down. Amen? I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. And if you've ever heard a salvific phrase, here it is. And I have come down. Aren't you thankful that God comes down? You wouldn't be at church today if he didn't. Oh, what words of salvation history. God came down. And so I love, love the verse. God came down. And so it is. And now, and now come, I will send you, speaking to Moses, down to Egypt. Let's highlight the most important part, which is the burning bush. And I have come down, right? But you know that the burning bush is the most fascinating and also the most, the clearest dynamic presentation of the manifest glory of God anywhere in the Scripture in the Old Testament was that burning bush. The fact that that thing could be burning and yet not be consumed. And the manifest power of God was all over that place. And listen, Stephen is saying, where is holy ground? Where holy ground is wherever God appears. Wherever God is, that is holy. Again, verse 34, God has come down. And that's the biblical summation of salvation. If God doesn't come down, we're not saved. If God doesn't condescend to, the, to His people's lives, remember, they thought that God was constricted and restricted to a temple. But he can't be confined and he can't be restricted. Right? He is transcendent above all things. You can't restrict him in a temple. You can't confine him there. But he's also not restricted to say he has to remain there. Why? Because if God doesn't come down, you don't get saved. And so he comes down to... He didn't have to come down and speak to Moses, folks. He's free and sovereign in his grace. He came down and spoke to Moses because it was his sovereign decree to do so. And here God is with his people in the midst of their oppression, down in Egypt, and God comes down. That's good. Amen? That's good preaching to think about that. And so the Sanhedrin, because of their idolatrous worship of sacred space, remember he's preaching to the Sanhedrin, the power brokers of the day, and because of the fact that God's glorious display of coming down was not in Palestine, but it was way out in the Midian desert, and he comes down in his work, to speak to Moses. And think about this. Because of their idolatrous worship to a particular place, they missed the ultimate coming down of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, the Son of God. They missed the most ultimate display of the glory of God in the person and work of the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what they missed. So Stephen will begin to pick up steam in verse 35. Subtle allusions are replaced with clear pronouncements of their rejection. Uh, do you notice this? Verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Hear the pronoun again? Say it. Y'all know what a pronoun is? This man, y'all see it again? led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This, y'all see it? Is, right? 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Y'all getting this? See the next one? This is, why is he giving those four pronouns? Why is he busting this Moses, this Moses, this Moses? Because folks, this Jesus is the one they've rejected. Right? And he's telling them the very Moses that you said, that you identify yourself with, you understand in Judaism, nobody's higher than Moses. And he's saying to them, this Moses, this Moses, this man, this one, is the one that you're following. Remember, where did the accusations come from? Chapter 6, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Remember, they, all, they actually put Moses up there with God as Trinitarian, right? They're making that mistake. And then on, down in verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So he's telling them, This is the man. This is the Moses. Stephen has great esteem for Moses. What does Moses do for us? He's a friend of the gospel because he points us to Jesus. That's what Moses does. And so he's reiterating this. He's picking up steam. He's trying to get them to see the parallels with the pronoun this. The same people who rejected Moses. Listen to what he says. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to us. Does this sound like Jesus? He's making a comparison. Jesus had the very words of life. Our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, uh-oh, here's the smoking gun, people. Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Mm. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now we're flashing forward 900 years. Listen, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star, uh, and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Whew. Now, he's gone from preaching to meddling. I mean, he is scorching them with this Moses, this Moses, compared to Christ and their rejection of him. He's building steam in this particular sermon. And again, they highly esteem Moses. Do you remember in John chapter 9 when a man is born blind and Jesus heals him? And the Pharisees come along and they say, there's no way that this man was born blind. It just can't be true. And they ask the parents. And the parents, we have some parenthetical references in there where it says, hmm, the parents knew that if anybody confessed Jesus, that he did anything, they'd get kicked out of the synagogue. You ever read that before? It's supplied for you. And so they ask the man, who healed you? And he tells them, you know, Lord Jesus took mud from the ground, put it on my eyes. I was blind, but now I see. That's still not good enough for the Pharisees. They just can't believe. So they go back to the parents and they say, hey, was this man born blind? And they say, we can tell you this, he was born blind. Well, how did he get healed? They were closed lipped. They didn't want to say anything. Here's what they said. The boy is of age. Ask the boy. 
So they go back to the boy again, and they say, were you born blind? Yes. Well, how were you healed? I was healed by Jesus. And they say, well, do you believe in Jesus? He said, all I can tell you is this. I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that good? And you know what they say? Well, we're disciples of Moses. Oh, he says this. This is so good. This is before he knows Christ, too. Think about this. Because a little later in the text is when he confesses Jesus as Lord. They, he says to them, do you believe in him? And the Pharisee says, oh, no. We're disciples of We're disciples of Moses. That text doesn't indicate they're disciples of Moses, does it? We're disciples of Moses. And then, of course, Jesus goes and finds this man right past that in John 9. And he says to him, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. And he's gloriously saved. Isn't that awesome? But they're disciples of Moses. I mean, they, in all the subtle different things of the laws they have made up, I mean, they're just they're following Moses and following Moses. But history tells the opposite of that. God sends them a deliverer, and they reject him. Moses was totally attested by God. They saw signs and miracles and wonders to prove it. Don't miss all the parallels. And again, verse 37, what a bombshell. Moses told you that Jesus Christ was coming. Moses told you the prophet was coming. Your prophet. Now, Jews are going to deny that if they don't know Christ. They're going to say, well, he wasn't talking about Jesus. Well, Stephen said he was. Right? He was the prophet that was coming. Again, Peter has already reminded us of how they treated Moses back in chapter 3, verse 22. So, remember what Peter was told? Jesus said to him, Are you going to follow me too, Peter? Are you going to abandon me? What does Peter say? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. And so Jesus was given... As a deliverer, I want to remind you, Hebrews says that Moses was a servant in the house, but the Son of God owns the house. He is the Lord of the house. And so Stephen had Abraham's own blood coursing through his veins as well. And he begins to put the family dynamic into it. And he's saying that through Moses' entire lifespan, was there ever a time when you obeyed? Was there ever a time when you did what my prophet told you to do? Can y'all find a time where they ever obeyed and were thankful? I mean, most of the time they would say, mm, I'd rather go back and sit on the Nile and eat onions and leeks. Are, are you the one that brought us out here to perish in the wilderness? So they had seen all these things. They watched all the plagues mediated out on the people of Egypt. One plague after another, they watched. They watched God roll back the waters of the Red Sea like pushing a squeegee over a gym floor. They saw all these things. They walked, all, walked across in dry ground. They watched Moses take a stick and strike a rock. And buddy, that water came flushing out of that rock. They saw all these things. And yet you're hard-pressed to find one time when they willingly submitted to Moses' leadership under the God who sent him down. Their hearts were bent toward Egypt. They were not looking for the promise of God, that God would dwell in their midst. Their hearts longed for Egypt. And now Stephen, again, will give exhibit A in what he's preaching. And he said, uh, this is the only example needed, right? And what is the encounter? What is he speaking of? The golden calf. Do you remember when God was giving his very oracles from heaven? He was giving his ten words placed on two tablets to Moses. And Moses comes down 
And what have the people done? Yep. That's right. They make a golden calf. Listen to the narrative. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountains, that sound like Stephen? The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man... <laughs> y'all see that? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I mean, he's meeting with God on the mountain. And these rebellious people have just been delivered on dry ground. And they've seen all they've seen, and their hearts are still in rebellion. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a, cart, with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. And they said, check this out. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> We, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow you shall have a feast before the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. Now, can I do a little side preaching right quick? Anybody mind if I do that? Can I chase one rabbit that's saved? Now, in context, we're looking at the smoking gun, meaning this is ultimate rebellion against God. God sent Moses down, the deliverer, and not only did you reject him, but you took God-given liberty that was given to you, and you directed your worship away from the God who made you and delivered you, and you started worshiping the creature and not the creator. Right? Now, boy, there's some, there's some things in here we need to think about, folks. They did what was popular instead of what was right in regard to worship. Aaron is listed as a terrible leader who panders the people and listens to them and does what they think is acceptable worship. I want to remind you something, folks. That's not going to happen at this church. You're not going to pander your pastor, and you're not going to get me to do whatever I think is going to draw a huge crowd and or to mealy mouth around and not preach the truth so that we don't hurt people's feelings and we can draw a big crowd. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Because you can easily slide off into false worship. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to look out for your souls because I'm going to give an account one day of how I led you and what I preached to you. And here's a, here's a case where it's terrible spiritual leadership where Aaron listens to the people. What does the golden calf represent to them? Something they can manipulate with your hands. Something that's going to fit your own desires. Something that you can easily manipulate. It can't talk. And you don't have to fear it one bit. But that God who just came down on Mount Sinai is something to withhold. Something to behold. He's the God of creation. And when He speaks, the world stands still. And when he speaks, he comes down in glory. And God is speaking. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They want to make their God into the, the thing they can manipulate with their hands. They make it into gold. Right? And they begin to worship. They can pick it up. They can throw it down. They can kick it. They cannot be attentive to it. They don't have to talk to it. Because it's not alive. 
And thus, that kind of leadership with Aaron, bless his heart. You know, we say bless his heart when you're really frustrated with the way people live. <laughs> bless his heart. You know, he leads the people to do this, and the people get what they want. I want to remind you that it all starts with worship, folks. When you don't know who it is you worship, and you distort the true worship to God, you're going to fall every time. Every time you distort who God is, and you attempt to manipulate Him into what you want Him to be, you're going to fall. And the result in this text is sexual corruption. Hello, Tokyo. When it says that they rose up to play, that's sexual connotations and overtones. They're doing things immorally before the God they're supposed to worship. Now, you young people better listen to me and listen to me close. If there's spiritual, if there is sexual bondage in your life, you're going to fall. Adults, you're going to fall if you're in sexual bondage. And you just listen to me. This is what's going on in our country. You take something. Can I talk to you all as your pastor looking out for your soul? You take something as awesomely made as a human body. And you distort that thing and begin. It's a good thing. But then you begin to make it a God thing. Then you're in trouble. And that's what we're seeing in our culture. When you don't worship God for who He is and respect Him in all His holiness, thus you've missed His deliverer if you do that because you can't approach, approach God, period, without Jesus. So you miss Him in worship. And then what happens is it, it turns over into corruption of life and sexual sins such as pornography and whatever you kids do with your phone, sending out stuff and looking at these. Let me tell you something, folks, from my heart. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your life. Corruption comes, and you will not escape it. I have to tell you that from my heart. Can I say one more thing? You're not going to get mad at your pastor, are you? Some of you sisters have to help your brothers in worship and put on some clothes. Put on some clothes. you got to help us. Hey, the human body is a beautiful thing. But ladies... God has called you to one man in your lifetime. One man is what God has called you for in your lifetime. Is everybody listening? One man. How dare you give that body to someone else other than the man God has chosen for you. You men, God has given you one wife for a lifetime. Don't give your body away to somebody that don't belong to God and or God hasn't given them to you. It's not your right. If you belong to Jesus, God has given you that body for one man in the future. Give it to him on your marriage night and not before. Stand up. Look, here's a woman right here. Stand up. Submit, right? <laughs> Listen, one woman for an entire lifetime. We are living testimonies that you can be a virgin when you get married. Yes! You can do it. And you ought to want to do it. I mean, you just, as a pastor, when you love people, you just get it up to here. And you're like, oh, people just stopped and thought about what they're doing to their lives. And it's a downward spiral. Look what happened in the text. They distorted the worship of God, and it ended up corrupting their lives. And the very first one was they all wanted to play. Mm, because they missed who God is. 
uh, Romans chapter 1. Read that one. They changed the invisible glory of God. Turned it into a thing to be worshipped. And in our day, folks, we're worshipping sex and it's bondage. We need to all take them about face and say, God, you're greater than that. You gave that to us as an awesome pleasure, as an awesome companionship gift within the confines of marriage and not before. Amen? Now, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. All right, listen. Let me, let me conclude with application. When I get something in my crawl, i got to get it out, you know? And I know, I'm sorry about the fact that we got kids in here, but I tried to use terminology that wasn't quite as clear. You understand what I'm saying? But your kids are in here, and it's Sunday morning, and I have to say it because some of you won't be back tonight. Ah, amen, right? Listen. Sacred space is wherever God is, and God is with his people. Man, that's summary. The desert was holy ground. Midian was holy ground. The wilderness, can you believe that, was holy ground. And God used all those places as a display for his wonders and his grace. God's people have never been tied to sacred space. You know why? Because we're on our way to glory. And the city and the foundations are sure. Right? Number two, Jesus Christ is God's deliverer and redeemer. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you would have believed Moses, then you would believe me because Moses spoke of me. That's the words of Christ. And Moses said, there's a prophet coming. Listen to him. Stephen esteemed Moses because he points us to Jesus Christ, God's ultimate deliverer. Number three, to reject Jesus Christ and his salvation is to set yourself up for judgment. Did y'all see how the text was unfolding? Just consider how God blessed the Israelites with his truth. Display, display of glory after display of glory. Plagues mediated out, Red Sea folded back, manna from heaven. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. The Israelites were people. Stephen will say this, you heard, you heard, you saw, you saw God do all these things through covenants. You were recipients of the word of God, a privileged people, and yet you ran toward idolatry, i.e. golden calf. And you rejected God's redeemer and his redemption. Now, I'm sure that there are some of us, old and young alike, you've heard the story of redemption and the story of our Redeemer over and over and over and over again. You think it's a pretty good idea to go to church. You think, well, I I may even hear a few things that I can apply to my life, but I'm not giving up certain things in my life to follow Christ. You're just like the Israelites. I'm just not going to do that. There's just one or two things I'm holding on to, and I'm not going to give those things up. I refuse to give up the things I love. I want to tell you, if you refuse to give up the things you love, rather than follow Jesus, then you're an idolater. And we're all guilty at times, are we not? Yes. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and you're devoted to Him, you're a a devoted follower of Christ, then you've got to follow Jesus and let idols go. Don't you love what Paul says to the Thessalonians? He says to them, Church of Thessalonians, he says to the Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica, he says, what an awesome thing that when you heard the word, you turned to God from idols. Not that you turned from God, from idols to God, but that you turned to God from idols. You know, folks, you can turn from one idol and go to another one. But if you ever turn to Jesus, you will turn from idols. 
You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His coming from heaven. Idolaters, God will judge, folks. And what I want to say to you is just like God judged the Israelites and banished them from their land and put them out there in Babylon for all that time, God is saying God judged the people. He judged the ones who made the golden calf. He judged the ones sent down to Babylon. And if you reject Jesus Christ, you will be judged as well. I have to tell you that because I love you. Most unloving thing I can tell you is you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. But you're not going to be fine. None of us are going to be fine. If we reject God's deliverer sent from heaven, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be judged. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I pray, Lord, that you've... Father, you've spoken through your word. We know that. God, would you give us receptive ears to hear? God, would you send a wave of revival and grip our hearts? God, we have, we have gone so far away from you in so many areas. And God, forgive us. Lord, we need a revival among our people of the holiness of God. And we need a revival among our people considering who you are, Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you help us to worship you in spirit and in truth? And Lord, help us to realize that the holy place is all of those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior because that's where you are. You live in us. And Lord, Stephen was making that very clear that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is God and that he alone saves people. And where Jesus is is where God is because he's God and he lives in us. Lord, he's going to make that clear next week in the last part of that sermon. He's going to make it clear that he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He dwells in our hearts. He lives in us. And Lord, thank you for that truth. Father, if there's someone under the sound of my voice that is right now presently in judgment, would you woo them to yourself with sovereign grace? Would you help them see that you can forgive and save any man, anytime, anywhere if they'll turn to you and trust you? Trust that you alone paid the penalty for their sins on Calvary. You alone lived perfectly the law of God and never sinned. You alone are worthy of our worship. And if they would turn to you from their sin and trust you personally, you'll give to them a righteousness that is apart from the law. Because you are the fulfillment of the law. Lord, would you allow that to happen today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.